Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, this is part four of our six-part sermon series called We Are Disciples. And this series is looking at this definition of disciples. In our highly compartmentalized lives, it can be easy to think about discipleship as something that happens only when we're in the church building. But according to the New Testament, discipleship happens as we are knowing and as we are following Jesus with other disciples wherever we go. Being a disciple begins with knowing who we are in Christ, and this new identity is to be discovered and lived out in every area of life. So we're applying the gospel to every area of our life. And what does that look like? Well, that's what we're addressing in this series as we're unpacking Grantham Church's definition of disciples, which you saw just a moment ago. It says this, disciples are people in community who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are growing to love, follow, and lead others to the God who looks like Jesus. And so we've been making our way through this definition a few words at a time. We began with a message called the invitation to discipleship, and we looked at our identity in Christ, what it means to root our identity in Christ, to make Christ the center of our life as well as the center of our church. And then the second message, we looked at the people in community portion, that is authentic Christian community, we said, comes out of Christ. And we have to be careful of this as Anabaptists who love community, as, as we should love community, but we can make that an idol. We can seek after community instead of Christ, and then we don't actually get the kind of community uh, that the Lord wants to create among us. And then last Sunday, we looked at who are growing. It's a, a word you hear a lot in the church, to grow, to grow in our faith, spiritual growth, that sort of thing. What does that look like? We address that. How does it happen? I said, just like organic life, I said this last week, there are right conditions for spiritual life and growth. I said, how is your soul soil? To think of it, think of it this way, the right conditions for spiritual life and growth are staying connected to the vine. Jesus referred to himself as the vine in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? If you remain in me, abide in me, uh, you'll produce great fruit. But apart from me, Jesus said what? You can do nothing. So we have to remain in the vine. And we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit more uh, today. This is why I have this up here. Giving the Holy Spirit something to work with was number two. What are you giving the Spirit to work with? Are you giving Him a humble, teachable heart? Are you giving Him your, your time, your talents, and your treasure? That's important for soul soil. And then third, uh, the third one there, allowing for the planting of seeds and the watering of your spiritual life through other disciples in the church, working the spaces, listening and learning from pastors, leaders, and other seasoned disciples. So keep thinking about that as we move into today's message where we're going to give attention to this idea of growing to love and follow. What do we mean when we say that we're growing to love and follow the God who looks like 
Jesus. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You have your Bibles? Would you open those up to the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 22. And when you get there, you might hold your place in Matthew 22. And also flip over to John chapter 15 and hold your place there as well. And as you're going there in your Bibles, would you stand with me as we read the Scriptures together? In honor of the Lord's Word. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question Jesus again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Jesus said, Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And then look at John 15, beginning verse 9. Jesus said to his disciples, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, well, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy, with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves or servants because a master doesn't confide in his slaves or servants. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Many of you know I grew up in um, Southern Baptist tradition, and I'm not going to speak for the whole denomination, but from my own experience, and maybe uh, even if you grew up in a different tradition, you might relate to some of this. I, I grew up in what I would call a world of, of feelings. <laughs> um, as, as a young person who's already hormonal, uh, trying to figure himself out and, and learn what life is about and, and specifically trying to follow Jesus. In a very emotional family, things were really up and down. And yes, if I'm honest, there was probably some anti-intellectualism that was at work, not just in my family, but in the church. Now, it seemed fine to read and learn and study when it affirmed what you already thought, but beyond that, it was pretty much anti-intellectual. And so then going to college, I, I began to learn to think, and overall, this was a, a positive experience for me. 
learning to think for myself, learning to question what it was that I had been taught, and is it true, and if it's not, how to align myself with the truth. And so I walked in that for a few years, and I eventually, though, learned that I could not think my way to greater faith. Do you know that? that? That thinking and learning can do a whole lot in helping you work out your faith and even maturing in your faith, but ultimately is not the way to, to deepen your faith and your love in Jesus. I want you to hear me very carefully here because what I'm saying is not anti-intellectual. We are a very, very much a, a learning church, and I'm not discouraging that at all. But I do want you to see the difference. So about 15 years ago, I'm, I'm between jobs when we had just moved from rural East Texas down to Houston. <clears throat> yes, I hope the Astros lose. Um, <laughs> did that come out? <laughs> uh, that was supposed to be the inside voice, but it came out. Uh, go Rangers. Um, so about 15 years ago, uh, I watched this video of Brennan Manning. Some of you will have heard of Brennan Manning. He's a, a, he was a Christian mystic, an author, um, had quite a broken uh, past. Uh, he, he was a broken person. But one thing he knew was the love of Jesus for himself, that he was loved by Jesus and called to love Jesus. And I remember sitting in our apartment there in Houston and watching this YouTube video um, and, and just being moved to tears. And his talk was like over an hour long. But I was just, I encountered the love of Jesus in a new way. And in that moment was sort of reminded that great things can come from learning. But ultimately it is making a, a relational connection to Jesus. And experiencing his love that changes us. Amen? And we say that as brethren in Christ, by the way. Uh, we say that we're pietists. We say that it's not just enough to know things about God and learn a lot of stuff, and as Paul might say, to puff ourselves up with knowledge, but to actually experience God for ourselves. And so just as we're not unregulated emotions to be led around by our feelings, we've got to be careful with that, uh, and we're not discouraging feelings, but there's a reason why we're to discern our feelings and emotions and the things we believe God is saying to us with others. We don't just get to throw out the card, well, God told me this, so I don't care what you say. We don't, we don't get to do that because we're called as disciples to live and to walk and discern in community together. But we're also not brains on a stick. You've heard me say this before. We're not brains on a stick. We don't become disciples just by believing certain things or even by obeying some rules. And I think it's a misconception of Christianity if that's what you think about our faith. We can't think our way into holiness. We can't think our way into following the commands of Jesus. I think this is one of the main challenges Jesus had for the Pharisees, right? And these teachers of the law. They thought it was enough to know the law. Every jot and tittle. They had it memorized. They knew what God said, but Jesus said they were far from God. How can that be? They didn't know him. They didn't know Jesus who revealed the Father. In fact, he said they were of another father, the devil. Those are strong words, and we need to hear that and reflect for ourselves what this means. 
Instead, as we heard earlier from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and then in John 15, we're called to love God with our whole being. And then you see discipleship and obedience flows out of this divine love exchange. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, you can, you can study, let's say, even the Sermon on the Mount. I hear there's a learning community that's doing that here at Grantham. You can study that the same way the Pharisees studied the law and missed Jesus. You see, where, where we connect with Jesus and where we discover obedience and walk in obedience to Christ's commands is through a love relational connection with Jesus. Are you hearing me? This is the truth. So we're called to love God with our whole being, Jesus said. And then discipleship flows out of this divine love exchange being loved by God and loving God in return. That's because we're first and foremost lovers. Think about it. That's what Jamie Smith writes in his book, You Are What You Love. You've heard me mention this book before. Here's a quote from his book. He said, what if instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, like brains on a stick, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers. What if you are defined not by what you know, but by what you desire? What if the center and seat of the human person is found not in the heady regions of the intellect, right? Not in the heady regions of the intellect, but in the gut level regions of the heart. How would that change our approach to discipleship and Christian formation? And we talk about heart in the English language. We don't mean the organ pumping in our chest. That's really important. I'm glad it's doing that job. But we're talking about really the soul, the inner uh, sanctum of our emotions, our feelings, where love happens. So think about it. We cannot change. We cannot grow. We can't even follow Jesus' commands until we get to that place and examine that inner sanctum, that place of our loves, that place where often idols move in and set up house. So follow this. Smith is saying that we are created to be lovers and that we're driven by our passions and loves. And if that's true, and I think that it is, can you see why now you have tried through learning to do what Jesus has said, but you have failed? <laughs> right? This is what we're talking about. And more specifically, we were created to love and be loved by God to enter the divine relationship that is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We may think of it this way. What learning can do for us is remove all obstacles, bring clarity, help us to see what we should do. But in order for us to actually do it, we have to encounter Jesus in our soul. We have to have a real love relational connection with God. Do you understand what we're saying? So yes, learning has its place, but learning isn't going to get us where Jesus wants us to be. And this isn't just some theology lesson. It's the way things really are, and you know it. You know it, because we're all created this way. And we all know that where our passions and our loves reside, that until you touch that place, until the Lord can put his hand on that place, you're not going to change. You're not going to grow. You're not going to love and you're not going to follow. And so this is the invitation really this morning is to let the Lord into that space. This is the way things are. It's not just a theology lesson as we said. 
This is how we become healthy and whole human beings. It's how we change and grow as disciples. And did you notice from the scriptures that we read earlier, our life in the Lord involves the following. Number one, aiming our love and passions at Him. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, that is in there, and all of your strength. And number two, Jesus said, you know, loving and being loved by God is what leads to change and action. You'll find yourself, Jesus said, obeying my commands when you are, you're abiding in my love. When you remain in Christ and are walking in his love, that is experiencing Jesus, you will find yourselves following him. You will find yourselves doing things that your flesh originally said, no, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. And that's true. Not without the Lord's help. In other words, it's a love relationship with Jesus that motivates transformation and the love of others. This requires vulnerability, doesn't it? To open up the, the, the door of our heart and let Jesus into that place. Remember, God himself in his grace has initiated this divine love exchange. Listen to what John said in his epistle. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, and then look at verse 19 as well. He said, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Do you see the initiation? God started this. God invited us in. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the this sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus on the cross, which we're saying about this morning, which is evidence of this love. It's proof of this love. We didn't deserve it. It's God's grace, which he extended to us. Dear friends, verse 11, since God loved, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice, just as Jesus did, holding love of maker with love of neighbor. Love of the creator with the love of of our neighbors and enemies. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You know, St. Augustine said that our hearts are made to find their rest in God. You ever heard this? We all have a God-shaped hole in us. Only God in his love can fill it. Our hearts are, are made to find their rest in God. And so if we're not aiming our love at Christ and abiding in his love, then we try to love substitutes. And then what happens is we experience anxiety and restlessness. Do you follow what I'm saying? You were created by the God who looks like Jesus. And the Gospel of John tells us that everything that was created was created through his son Jesus. He is our creator. If we're, not, if we're not aiming our loves and our passions at the creator, then, then what Augustine is saying is that it creates all kinds of anxiety and restlessness in us. Because what we really want, where we, where we, where we want all of our, our loves to be focused, is upon Christ. That's because as disciples, our love for Jesus needs to be the heart center of gravity for us. Just as the sun, I said this already, just as the sun and its massive weight and gravity, right, has the planets circling around it, Jesus should be the very center of our gravity in the system that we call our soul, our life, everything that we are. 
Jesus should be the heart center of gravity for us. If he's not, and we don't aim and focus our deepest love and passion upon knowing Christ, then other loves and passions will take their place. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. And you don't have to have wooden or stone or bronze statues to have an idol. We, our hearts, as John Calvin said, are idol-making factories. So anything that we put in the place of Jesus can become an idol. Are you with me? And this is how we can find ourselves saying that we believe certain things, but then our living says otherwise. Now, to some extent, we're always, we're always on that journey, right? To some extent, we're always on that journey. We say we believe things, but we're not living it out. But we need to recognize that is the task. That is what we're being called to, to, to make sure that our mind and our heart is congruent with one another, that what we say and what we do are one. That's how some in the church get to this place, you see, of saying that they have faith, but their life isn't backed up by Christ-like actions. And that's what James was going on about in his epistle of wisdom. You're probably familiar with this passage in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. He said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, no actions? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, bless you, bless you, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. The example that James uses, and of course Jesus uses, and John uses in his epistle, the ultimate example of this, is we say that we love God, but refuse to love our neighbor, right? Whether it's our Israeli neighbor, or our Palestinian neighbor, or your neighbor across the street, or your neighbor in the church across the aisle, it doesn't matter. Jesus said that if we say we love God, yet we refuse to love our neighbor, the epistle of John says we are liars. So how do we get there? We have to abide in the love of Jesus. This is how we get there. This is how it happens. It happens because we're not addressing matters. That, that is this, this um, misalignment between our beliefs and our heart and our actions. It happens because we're not addressing matters of the heart. We're not addressing our passions and our loves. We're just thinking if we get our thinking in order and think right about things, then somehow everything else will follow. But no, it's the other way around. We've got to look at our passions. We've got to look at our loves. We've got to look at the thing that consumes our time, where we, where we dwell our thoughts, the things that we run after, the things that we worship. Therefore, what we need to do is see discipleship as a way of finding, as I said, congruity with our mind and heart, aligning our beliefs with our actions. But let's be clear, though. It's our heart, the center of our passion and loves, that will drive and fuel our growth. See, until we examine our deepest love and, and, and longings of the heart, And make sure that it is, in fact, Jesus who sits on that throne, the object of all of our affections, then we cannot grow in his love and follow him. Jamie Smith believes in order to keep Jesus on the throne of our heart and and ensure that he is the center of our lives, we need to see that you are what you love 
And then he says, love is a habit. Think about this. Love is a habit. He says, this means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. Man, this flies in the face of of American society and culture with Google, right? Somehow life isn't right and we just put it in the search engine. That's going to fix it, we think, but it doesn't. Right, so we need to orient our desires to God and what God desires, and how do we do that? How do, how do we do that? How do we ensure that Jesus is on the throne of that inner sanctum? That Jesus is at the center gravity of our passions and our loves? Well, I submit to you that we accept our religious wiring and embrace religious practices. Some of you remember back in 2019, we did a series called Spiritual and Religious. This is obviously in response to what you hear in our culture, that I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. What is religion properly defined? This is what we said, and it comes from the root word, which means to bind to something, to, to become one with something. This is, religion is a socio-cultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning, purpose, and direction to a person's life and to the world around them. And if you look at that definition, there's a whole lot of things that may not be officially called a religion that can become religious. Yeah, I was at the Pumpkin Fest last weekend. You ever, ever been to Pumpkin Fest? Um, you know, over in Enola. And I was a little surprised to see that, you know, they've got all these food trucks and these uh, these tents set up where you can go buy things. And there was a tent, and I can't even remember the name of the organization, uh, but it was, it was an organization for atheists, agnostics, and non-believers. And they had a table full of all kinds of pamphlets and cutesy little bumper stickers and all kinds of things. And I, think, I would thought to my, this is what I thought, this is the first thing that I thought was, for people who claim not to be religious, you sure are religious. You're out here evangelizing for non-belief. Why? Because by our nature, we are all religious animals. So if Jesus isn't the center of our heart gravity, something will be. We will place something there for all of our life to revolve revolve around. And we'll we'll seek to get our beliefs, our values, our behaviors will come out of that, practices, we find meaning and purpose, all of that. But for the Christian, the functional definition we said for religion is this. It involves practices of prayer. It involves scripture, sacrament, liturgy, and so forth. that has been handed down to us. That means we don't get to make this stuff up. It's an inherited faith, right, that we, we get to participate in and join with this cloud of witnesses so that we can be properly formed in worship. This is why we need religion. You say, I, I thought religion was bad. You know, this is, not, this is about a relationship, not about religion. Well, I get the way that religion is used pejoratively like this, but you need to think about something long and hard. Jesus himself was a religious Jew. Jesus was religious. Jesus was circumcised, as all Hebrew religious Hebrew people would, be, would have been. Jesus prayed regularly at regular times. Jesus went to synagogue regularly. He made pilgr- pilgrimages to Jerusalem regularly. He even had prayer tassels, which was traditional for rabbis. You remember the woman that went to reach out just to touch him? It says it touched the fringe of his garment. Very literally there is that she touched the fringes of his prayer tassels. Jesus was wearing religious garb. 
Jesus was a religious person, so the New Testament doesn't have a problem with religion. It has a problem with dead religion. It has a problem with hypocrisy. It has a problem with people who on the outside claim to be one thing, as the Pharisees did, but on the inside, right, whitewashed tunes. On the inside, they're filled with dead men's bones. So, so we need to remember this. We need to remember this. We need this power of, of religious practice to aim our loves and our passions at Jesus. And what exactly do we mean by liturgy? Make some Protestants nervous, especially people who claim to have no liturgy. But this simply is this. It is the work of the people. It's our public worship. Liturgy consists of routines and rhythms and rituals that express our devotion and our worship and obedience to Christ. Liturgy involves formative practices meant to focus our love, deepen our faith, and empower us to live as citizens of the kingdom. Again, Smith says the practices of Christian worship train our love. It helps to set our sights by creating holy habits. It sets our sights very intentionally on Christ himself. Essentially, it's a counterformation, a counterformation to the rival liturgies that we're often immersed in in the world, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings. That is why worship is at the heart of discipleship, Smith says. We can't counter the power of all the world's cultural liturgies with didactic information poured into our intellects. Do you hear that? We can't recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely in informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God, he says, takes practice. So what does it look like to orient our hearts to Christ? To love Him so that loving others and following Him be our deepest desire. That these things would come as a natural outflow of our relationship with Jesus. Here's what I think it looks like. I have there at the top of the screen, are you in love with Jesus? And already there are some people like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird, I'm in love with, with Jesus. I had a Greek professor once who uh, <clears throat> was sort of making fun of somebody. I don't even know why he told this story, but he, he made fun of some lady he met in, ran into in Walmart. I think, I don't know if she's part of his congregation or what, because he did interim pastor work some. But he said, he said, how you doing? And she said, I was just home this morning just loving on Jesus. And he thought that was so strange. Kind of made fun of her for it. Why? Why is that strange? We, we, because we use this intimate language of love. Folks, um, sexual intimacy and, and eroticism is not the highest form of love. This is why not everybody uh, is, is given access to it, according to the New Testament sexual ethic. But what we all do have access to is this intimate, agape love of God that goes much deeper than any kind of sexual intimacy, which is merely just a signpost anyway to the love of God. So we need to think about this. We are called to be in love with Jesus. So here are ways then to aim our love toward Christ and grow as disciples. Number one, we got to spend time with Jesus. I mean, what relationship goes anywhere if you don't spend time with a person? Now, this can look different for all of us. Um, you kind of have to find what works for you in the season of life that you're in. But here the basic ingredients are listening, not just talking. Your prayer life can't just be talking. It has to be listening. 
It has to be to embrace silence. It has to be to be able to enjoy just being in the presence of the Lord. And we could do this at home or we could do this on a hike. There are lots of different ways to do that. And listening to music. But whatever that looks like for you, you have to spend time with Jesus. Number two, you have to develop holy habits and routines, right? These are the guardrails that help guide us, our loves and our passions to Jesus, the center of our heart's gravity. Developing holy habits and routines, having a quiet time, worshiping regularly, praying regularly, Sabbathing regularly. And then number three, walking with other disciples. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. This isn't something that we can do on our own. We're called to do it in community. And that looks like confession, accountability, uh, seeking uh, the Lord amongst his people and discerning his will for our life, what God wants us to do. But, you know, before I share some questions to think about in response to what we've heard, I, I'd like at this last portion of the message to invite a congregant up who is aiming her love toward Christ and has been discerning her calling as a disciple. And she comes to share an update on what has been happening in her life in this past year, but also to inspire us to love and follow Jesus. Would you welcome Jess Jason this morning? Good morning. On August 21st, 2002, surrounded by friends, family, and this whole congregation of Grantham Church, I was commissioned for a one-year chaplain residency program at Wellspan House York Hospital. Well, since my residency program ended about a month and a half ago, I want to provide you with an update of my experience of the program, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do so. So as I mentioned, over the past year, I've worked at York Hospital, and here's a, a picture of the campus on the screen. Um, as a chaplain, and I was completing my clinical pastoral education residency program. York Hospital is a 580-bed community teaching hospital serving South Central Pennsylvania. And it's also a regional resource level one trauma center and primary stroke center. Within my program, there were three other chaplain residents, all of whom are female, which is uncommon for this program. So here's a picture of Elizabeth, Martha, myself, and Donna. While we worked as interfaith chaplains within the hospital setting, we all came from different Christian denominational backgrounds, including a combination of Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, and of course myself with an Anabaptist background. Shortly after concluding my time at York Hospital, I shared a summary of my experience to social media, along with this picture, uh, that I would like to share in this space too. I wrote, one week ago I finished my clinical pastoral education residency program and my work as a chaplain at a hospital in my community. The past year has included moments both grueling and sacred. Moments where the divine has been so near and moments I'm glad I never have to repeat. Through it all, it has been my privilege, even though it admittedly hasn't always felt like it, to hold space for people during some of their most vulnerable moments. Here's to the end of my residency era. I'll be honest, the past year has not been easy. 
Being in a residency program that on top, meant that on top of my normal clinical rounds and meeting with patients, I also had to participate in classroom time, write papers, write verbatim conversations I had with patients and analyze the spiritual care I provided during those visits and serve as the on-call chaplain for the hospital. On-call shifts were either 12 or 24 hours long, which meant I slept at the hospital at least one to two or even sometimes more times a week. During some of those on-call shifts, I witnessed some really challenging, traumatic situations and was present with people as they experienced what was likely one of the worst days of their lives. The death of a child, the death of a young adult due to gun violence, something that's completely preventable. A spouse learning that her husband would not recover from injuries related to an accident a terminal cancer diagnosis, the death of an elderly patient in the operating room, a mass casualty incident. Bearing witness to such grief and pain regularly forced me to establish good boundaries early on in my residency. For example, even linguistically in the way I think about my job role, I can never carry people's burdens for them, but I can be present with people or hold space for them as they experience a wide range of feelings. Setting good boundaries has not eliminated some of the vicarious trauma I have experienced, but this, along with other ways of coping, has helped me in my work as a chaplain. However, even as challenging as the past year has been, my work as a chaplain has been incredibly fulfilling. I served as the chaplain resident for the general medical service line, which meant I visited patients across five different medical units and the medical intensive care unit. I also worked as a palliative care chaplain trainee with the palliative medicine team. I found that I really enjoyed the specialty of palliative care and the unique opportunities it provided to support patients and family members as they made care decisions. I attended family meetings, was present for goals of care and advanced directive discussions, and collaborated with patients' multidisciplinary care teams. Another place I found great enjoyment was in spending time with patients who have dementia, as patients with dementia were often waiting in the hospital for placement in an assisted living or skilled nursing facility. Also, when I was the on-call chaplain on Sundays, which was normally one to two times per month, I led a spirituality group on the inpatient behavioral health unit where anywhere from around eight to 15 patients would join the group each week. Throughout the year, I tried to keep some short notes of times um, in my phone when I received encouragement from patients or times when God felt especially near. Those notes were helpful to look back on during difficult moments like some of the ones I mentioned a few minutes ago. I'll share a few of those notes with you, but before I do that, I want to pause and talk about the term spiritual care. I did many things that one might traditionally attribute to the term spiritual care, such as reading a sacred text, offering a prayer, helping to lead a religious ritual like a baptism, and offering a ministry of presence to someone. But the umbrella of spiritual care also encompasses acts of love, care, and compassion, no matter how non-traditional. 
For instance, one note in my phone reads, today being a chaplain looked like walking diapers and wipes from one end of the hospital to another. I'm so happy to serve in this way. Another note reads, sometimes part of being a chaplain is helping a patient fix his blankets, find his remote, and turn off the TV. All sacred work. I was delighted to receive a Star Trek benediction from a patient's husband. Here, a patient recalled that she still had a printed copy of a poem I gave her during a previous hospitalization and learned that my presence with a patient was an answer to her prayer for something positive. While there is much more I could say about my residency experience and my work as a hospital chaplain, my time of sharing this morning is brief. And I'll close this time with a few final thoughts. I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to work within the WellSpan Health System, and I found it incredibly purposeful to serve people in my own community within a health system that has given so much to me. Um, I was actually born at York Hospital. Working as a chaplain at York Hospital allowed me to be closer to people on the margins of my community than I admittedly normally am. And I had the opportunity to interact with a diverse group of people daily. And finally, as much as I could, I tried to help people die with dignity, demonstrating their value as a human being, even and especially if no one was present with them. So having completed my residency program, I have been taking a little much-needed recuperation time. In the future, I intend to pursue board certification through the Association of Professional Chaplains. Currently, I'm in the process of job searching, and I would certainly welcome and appreciate your prayers during this time. And as I prepared to share this today, I was uh, sitting at Pinchot Park, looking at the spot where I was baptized as a teenager. In that moment, I said yes to following Jesus, not fully knowing what that would look like or where that would take me. I certainly didn't expect that saying yes to Jesus in that moment would, saying yet, would mean saying yes to voluntarily entering into the pain of other people and experiencing such vicarious trauma at work. However, Jesus did not promise us a life free from pain, but that he is with us in the midst of pain. And that gives me hope as I continue doing this work. Thank you. Let's pray for Jess. Can we do that? I'm, I'm going to put a hand on her, and if you want to just hold out your hand toward her, let's do that. Father, we thank you for Jess. We thank you, Lord, for what you have been doing in her life. We thank you, God, for the ways in which you're using her and have used her and will use her to bless others, to be your presence with them in some of life's most difficult moments. We thank you, Lord, for how you have called her and you're giving her clarity on that call. We thank you, Lord, for the witness and the testimony that she is to loving you and following you. Lord, we now pray that you would help her as she seeks her credentialing with the board and as she looks for a job, a place to serve you. In the meantime, Lord, be near to her. Give her your comfort, your peace, 
and your rest as she continues to trust in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here are some questions to help us reflect on what the Spirit is saying to us by what we've heard this morning to help us respond as disciples of Jesus. Number one, have you been trying to think your way into deeper faith? This is my honest reflection here this morning. Have you been trying to think your way into deeper faith? And what would it look like to love your way? into discipleship, to open up the door of your heart, to let the Lord come in and look at your loves and your passions. Number two, are you experiencing God's love for you on a regular basis? Are you experiencing his love for you? If not, what can you do to remain, or as Jesus said, abide in his love? Maybe there's something the Spirit is putting on your heart Maybe a small adjustment, maybe a big adjustment, something for you to do to spend time with Jesus and experience his love. And then lastly, number three, how is the Spirit inviting you to put your words into action? How do you need to step out in faith and follow Christ? So we say here at Grantham, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Let's follow him in obedience. Father, we are so grateful for the ways in which we have encountered you through this entire worship service, through the singing, through the prayers, through the preaching of the scriptures, through the testimony of saints. Holy Spirit, would you speak very clearly to our hearts? Where we need conviction, may we recognize when that's from you. If we need encouragement, Lord, may we receive that. Help us, Lord, to be your people. Help us, God, to aim and focus our loves and our passions at you. To make you central and supreme over everything else. For it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said.